0: and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Courtier Newland, on his epic, 20 years in the making novel, A River Called Time. Courtier Newland is the author of seven books, including his much-lauded debut, The Scholar... His last novel, The Gospel According to Cain*, was published in 2013. He co-edited The Penguin Book of New Black Writing in Britain and his short stories have featured in various anthologies and been broadcast on BBC Radio 4. As a screenwriter, he has written episodes of Steve McQueen's 2020 BBC series Small Axe and Cortia's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is A River Called Time. Cortia, welcome to Little Atoms.
2: Thank you very much. pleasure to be here
1: so tell me first of all how you would describe a river called time
2: uh i would describe it as uh it's a novel set in a parallel universe where because slavery and colonization didn't happen african cosmology is now the dominant religion
1: and i understand the book had a had a very long gestation can you tell Mm. me why
2: various reasons Uh, I had Arts Council funding to finish the book or to write the book get it started and uh, I ran out of money before I could finish all of it I finished part one as it is in the book but I didn't manage to finish the rest using that money Uh, and then I tried to go out to various publishers to try and see if they would pick up the book and you know give me a bit of an advance to, to carry on and finish it. But I couldn't find uh, any publishers that would take the book. I went to different agents. I was with a publisher at the time. They, they were like, you know, basically it's the best thing you've done, but we can't really, you know, we can't publish you doing this type of stuff. Uh, because you're known for like you know urban realism so i toddled off and went to other places and it was like uh this is you know the, the astral projection and the african cosmology bit was generally the problem and not the writing uh they'd they said oh, of course it was written very well but but you know uh, just, just you're doing all this stuff and if you know one one agent said to me if i change it to quantum physics that would uh probably you know solve a lot of the problems you know uh, but that was the whole premise of the book and so I, I was like I'm not I'm not doing that
1: and we're talking here about you know roughly 20 years this is not just like a couple of years <laughs> and obviously you're like you said you're publishing other things other novels yeah you this time so mm. what effect do you think that period of time had on the finished novel in terms of your development as a writer
2: strangely enough it had a huge effect on In the sense that, you know, I don't know if you you write at all, but I think for most writers, you know, if you write something and you put it down for about six months or so and you return to it, a lot of the questions like how do I do this and, and, you know, does this work, Uh, you can answer, you know, but if you put it down (laughs) between, you know, 18 to 19 years, you know, you come back to it, you know, it's just like wow, actually, or it did work work that way for me, wow, not only can I see how to fix some of the things that I'd written already, but I'm really, really charged up to write the rest. And I've been thinking about this stuff the whole time. Like, it never went away. Uh, I would return to it every couple of years or so. I would do a pass on what I had. But I was always thinking about it. And all of my books are in my study on the top shelf and have been, you know, I've lived in the house I'm living in now for like... uh, I think about seven, eight years. And they've been on the top shelf in my studies. So even though I wasn't working on it, they were there ready for when I do work on it. And uh, yeah, I just dove back in and I just went for it. And it was all, it just literally poured out of me. I I ended up after that 18 years, I ended up spending a period of about, it was between August and December that I I wrote the book in the end, you know, and I did the rest. And it was just literally, I couldn't stop writing. Yeah.
1: We'll come back to the cosmology and the sort of backstory, Mm. um, the history behind the book later on. But let's Mm -hmm. talk first of all about Dinium, the city, the representation of London in the sort of book's present. Um, Although even that's complicated because the book deals Mm. with various different time streams and and what have you. But for the sake of argument, um, sort of Dinium in the present day as the book starts... Um, and I'm talking to you now from penan Mercon or Merson, as it happens. I live in
2: um Whereabouts are you? Uh, I am in Forest Gate. So I was going to translate that. So in foot speak, <laughs> oh my God, I don't really know where, where Forest Gate is. <laughs> that's a, You know, that's the best question I've been asking ages, you know. I'm thinking that I might be in either Ilegban or Falanah. I think I'm in those places.
1: <laughs> well, let's talk about that. The city. Tell us about Dinium.
2: Well, yeah. So, so that's the second part of my kind of outline as to what the book's about. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, in this parallel world, there's been a war of light, or which was a war between the spiritualists and secularists, and this has resulted in inner city London being completely obliterated by a kind of electromagnetic bomb. And it's destroyed the whole of inner city London. And it's all wasteland, apart from a huge building in the middle of that waste that uh, is called the Ark. And basically, it was built to house people and protect them from the resulting radiation and pollution that, that came from, from this blast. But what's happened is that most of the rich people live in that building, and poor people are left outside in outer city and you know it's pretty much like you know uh it's it's like the worst parts of london all over in outer city you know there's there's not very many there's a few closer to the the blinn or the waste that it's called they're better off there's a few towns that are better off but mostly it's pretty pretty bad
1: and so again not wanting to give too much away as to actually Mm -hmm. what happens in the book tell us something about the ark the place in the center of the city what it is
2: yeah, yeah, it's it's just, it's a huge indoor city, you know, and you're not, you're meant to go into the arc and you're not meant to come out and it's like uh, different levels of uh, wealth and attainment. So the higher up you go in the arc, the more wealthy you are. And so on level one, uh you know there's there's areas of relative wealth but there's also that's usually level 1 level 2 and a little bit of level 3 is where where the, where the poor people are and you know you kind of uh you work there mainly to you know like marcus my main character you know to kind of like provide fake news to the people outside about what's going on inside and 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 you know the reverse is true for what he does you know he he kind of he he does that for people um inside as well you know he kind of t- talks about what's going on inside to people that are out and 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 you know just fakes it basically and also uh You've got like menial workers really you know the, the people who do the the worst the, the 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 low level jobs uh people live there and they also they also do the jobs for the for the upper levels as well so poor people don't live on the upper levels they go down they go back down they travel down to uh level one and uh it's it's just basically like the outside in a lot of those places you know they've they've just created you know through through uh neglect uh another another ghetto area.
1: Yeah so I mean class divisions are obviously like a major a major theme of the book we're, mm-hmm. we're talking here about a world in which you know which has been decolonized but this is no utopia clearly that you know there there are still like deeply riven problems in society
2: yeah, yeah. The problems are mainly between rich and poor, so they're not on the basis of race at all. It's more about how much money you have, and 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 you know hierarchy, and and you know generational wealth, whether that's been passed down or not.
1: Um, and tell us something about—I must say—the splendidly named Marcus Denny, a character <laughs> who I obviously immediately had a. Uh... A deep and abiding connection with tell us something about him
2: (laughs) (laughs) well yeah so marcus is been he's been born of you know outer city poor and he lives there and you know he's trying to better himself through study in order to to live in the ark you know his mum wants to give him a better life and 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 to help him to work hard so he can go and live in the ark and 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 you know just just make money for her, make money for them. Uh, it's a better means of living, and also just escape the kind of degradation that exists on the outside world. And uh, he starts to find that he he can spontaneously project, uh, astrally project his his spirit. Uh, he's he's got no real control over it, but this keeps happening to him. And because of that, he can then travel to different time periods, which is not, he doesn't go forwards or backwards in time. He goes to like parallel, uh, other parallel worlds, you know, so he kind of travels to the side.
1: And this, this sort of concept, as you've mentioned, the idea of sort of astral projection, which is one of the things we'll talk Mm -hmm. about a bit later on that comes out of the sort of African cosmology. And, for everybody else, like, Marcus realises he can do this, but for other people, this is something that's basically been, I guess, suppressed by technology.
2: Yeah, yeah. They have out-of-body experiences, but they have them via these machines that are called pods or sleepers, and they provide a kind of, like, mechanicalized out-of-body experiences, which are heavily monitored and controlled by the powers that be.
1: I understand part of the... Um... The influence of the of this idea of astral projection is something that actually happened to you.
2: Yes, yes, yeah. That's what gave me the impetus to to, to write the whole thing. Was that I was uh, yeah, uh, just not long after I'd written my first novel and published my first novel. Actually, yeah, I was uh, like I was staying in in, in a, a one room flat on a place called North Pole Road and uh yeah I had this uh, I spontaneously had this out of body experience and i had been having episodes like that throughout my life but I'd always fought against them and it's when I relaxed and didn't fight against it that I, I I believe my 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 spirit uh you know escaped my body and I was looking down on myself and then when I it was like almost it was like a dream but it's a dream where I could see myself lying on the bed and then when I woke up you know the room was exactly the same as I'd uh, dreamt it or seen it whatever you choose to believe and my first thought was wow you know I wonder if that was an out-of-body experience because it it, I was looking down on myself so I could only like presume that that's what it was and then my second thought was that'd be really cool to write about (laughs) <laughs> and then that was a way. I was like, OK, so let me see. See, how would I do that? You know, how would I put that together? Uh, how could I build a story out of that? And that's all I had for that was 1997. So that's all I had for until about maybe 2001, 2002.
0: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
2: Nice dress. Uh, it's a
0: it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on.
1: Listed to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Courtier Newland. We're talking about his latest novel, A River Called Time. And Courtier, let's talk about the ideas of the overarching cosmology of the story. I was going to call it African cosmology, although as you refer to it, uh, to Africa in the book as Bula or Alkibula, an original name for it. A lot of this this stuff comes out of um, Kemet as well, which was a former name for, um, or, you know, an original name for what we now call Egypt.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. um, And the people of ancient Egypt. Tell us, first of all, some of the, I mean, it's it's obviously a huge subject, but but some of the ideas from that cosmology that come into the book, come into the world.
2: Well, you know, the main thing is a belief that there is a spirit. That is uh, separate from the body. You know, you have your physical body, but then you have your spiritual body, and then also that you have uh, chakras, which are the kind of uh, intermediate point between those two states. And uh, it's a belief in ancestors that your your ancestors, you know, don't you don't just die. Body, you know, the body might die, but the spirit is it, still still present uh, in a different form. Uh, upon death, so death is not an end. Death is the beginning of another form of being, and uh, I mean they, 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 these uh, spiritual beliefs are quite huge, and they, you know, they've been emulated by. Uh, religious beliefs, you know, through the ages, you know, since then, uh, whether it's Christianity, uh, Buddhism or Hinduism or, you know, uh, indigenous Native Americans, you know, lo- there's lots of belief systems of the world that, that, that share these these ideas, you know, and that's what I was finding, you know, uh, when I looked at a lot of the religions that exist today, they all have a kind of grounding in these kind of beliefs.
1: So tell us about the process of creating this world in which these beliefs have grown up parallel with you know those other great world religions to be you know still significant elements of of everybody's life because i guess i guess what i want to get to really is the idea of like we're talking about the you know, the book itself is sort of decolonizing the world mm. but i guess part of creating that must have been to a certain extent decolonizing yourself was it sort yep. of like how did you get into the sort of frame of mind of mm. thinking about creating that world without bringing in everything that you'd learned growing up into that
2: yeah, I mean, well, first I had to decide, you know, like any book, really, what the rules of the world were, what the rules of the book were, and what had happened. And I suppose, that you know, kind of formulating the timeline that you, you find in the beginning of the book really helped, you know, to, to talk about uh, when what happened that is parallel to our world and when did the timeline pivot away into different things. Because I wanted to keep it quite close as well. But, uh, but, but, you know, there was these kind of very, I mean, big, fundamental differences but you know but also lots of things actually remain the same so in the beginning i I suppose i just i just read the books you know i I started off uh, I read a book called The Projection of the Astral Body uh, by Sylvain Maldon. And it was co-authored by, by somebody, uh, uh, here with Carrington, I think it was. And, uh, yeah. It, so I read that. And then I read a book by, by a guy called Oliver Fox, which was about astral projection. And I said, like, okay, yeah, I'm off. I'm going to start going into this a little bit deeper. And I read a few more books around that. And then I started reading, like, about that from the African side of things. So I read a book on, uh, um, Egyptian cosmology called the Metuneta. I read, there's a, there was an Egyptologist called Budge who I read a lot of his stuff, and I just tried to dive into it first in terms of doing the research and just like treat it actually because for me this was a story, you know. I wasn't really concerned with you know, proving or disproving whether this was true or not, you know. Uh, I wanted to treat it like people treat Nordic legends, you know, and say, okay, well, I'm just gonna, okay, so what if this was true? And so and 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 I read it like that, and then you know, I I, I went to classes, I talked to people, I had lots of conversations with people who shared those beliefs and then you know i i I suppose i tried to read books that talked about pre-colonial africa and a pre-colonial world actually and i read as many of those as i could
1: And in terms of then sort of like once you started writing the book, as I said, sort of decolonizing yourself, there's a bit I'm thinking that there's a bit in the afterword to the book where you talk about, you know, I I wrote somebody with origins that were Zambian or something and then realised that actually, you know, if this that wouldn't have existed if this yeah. world had have, have, have been like this.
2: Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, that first fundamentally it led me to the realisation that I couldn't use the word Africa, because Africa comes from, people assume, I mean, we don't know for sure, but it, it's theorised that Africa came from Romans, you know? So so I couldn't use that. Uh, that's about how it, what led me to Al-K-Bulan. I was looking for, for a, a word that was used, and there is no word that, people use for the continent you know apart from that you know, that's the only one they could find and that was that would have been centuries later you know after people had been been on the continent and civilizations had existed for years but yeah i found myself tripping up by constantly just like as a habit saying you know uh, someone was zambian or someone was nigerian or referring to a hairstyle as cane rose i mean by my reckoning i'm i'm, I'm from the caribbean you know i'm, I'm of west indian origin and west Indies didn't exist you know uh in my world just totally didn't exist you know that was, that was um uh people by caribs and arawaks and tahino you uh, uh, tahino kind of natives you know so you know, even then I just went to say like, Indians, you know, <laughs> that's, a, that's colonial, you know, so like, this, like the habit is just there. And I had to over the book and go over the book and go over the book uh, just to try and, and pull that stuff out. And one thing that was really brilliant for me was when I realized that I had to refer to the nation states of Africa that actually existed now. So if I could look at, a, at an area and I could find, you know, the nations that were there in present day, chances are they had existed for quite a long time. And I had to do you know real research into that because sometimes you know, that wasn't true. You know, like names, people call them tribal names. You know, I don't like that term either. That's a colonial term. But um, names of the people that existed there had been uh, ascribed to them by Europeans sometimes. But there were lots of times when they weren't. So someone who was Zambian then became like Lotse. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure if I'm even pronouncing it right because I've never heard it pronounced. But, you know, I, I kind of dealt with uh, writers who knew the regions well, and I looked at those books, and that's what led me to be like, okay, now I know what I can call certain people. Sometimes it was easy for, like, the Caribbean, you know? It was it was uh, super easy because a lot of the names, we know what the islands were called uh, beforehand. So Jamaica was Zamaca, Cuba was Cubanascan, you know, and so on and so forth. So, you know, like, you could those were actually easier to find in some of the, the regions in africa
1: and the other thing that you mention in the um well not in the afterword but in the acknowledgements of the book is that you've used um in a lot of cases you know characters are based on real people and indeed your own family i just wanted to talk about some of the elements of of incorporating people from life into the story
2: yeah, I mean, a lot of that is just actually just like nicking people's names. So, so you know, if I saw it, like a really funny story, I was doing a, a book signing in a Waterstones in Leeds, and I was talking to the woman who worked behind the till, and she said, "Oh, can you sign a book to me?" And I said, "Okay, who should I make it out to?" And she said, Keshni And I was like that's a brilliant name i love that name can i nick it for my book and she said yeah sure go ahead <laughs> so she then go on, went on to work in publishing years later and i found that is a cousin of a writer friend of mine i only found this out the other day he said oh my cousin's it, 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 there's a character in this book i have been waiting to see this book i'm really excited to read it but also there's a character in this book that's named after my my cousin i'm like that's your cousin so it's really weird how that's worked out mm-hmm. but um yeah and, and she she has a copy of the book now so i'm really excited after 20 years i can say to you know like, i've finally finish this book but uh yeah there's a few people in there like that whose names I like nicked. So if i found interesting names uh particularly african names but also like you know there's there's celtic characters in the book you know because it's not just it is about african cosmology primarily but not to the negation of everybody else so so there's there's celtic characters who i try my best to get them to speak a little bit of, of celtic you know in the book as well because and and they were. the uh, yeah, you know, indigenous uh, uh, Brits, basically, you know, in the book as well. So, you know, I was trying to say that so many things would have been different if colonization hadn't happened, as as, as well as slavery. But to all people, you know.
1: Just one more thing, then, and then um, I'll get you to to read a bit of a River Cold Time, if you would. I mentioned that you'd you'd written a couple of the um the small act shows, the the series that um Steve McQueen directed that was on yeah. Over the Eye Player over. Mm-hmm over christmas and and two you know absolute fantastic acclaim and I wonder if you'd just say something about the the reception of those films.
2: Yeah, no, it's been, it's been really heartwarming and, you know, just a beautiful thing to see. I've been, you know, really proud of those films and proud of the work we did. It's such an amazing thing to be able to work with Steve and co-write with Steve and, you know, a, a bit of validation but also a bit of, like, creative freedom to be able to really tell these stories which really do mean a lot to me and tell them in a way that I I knew they should be told. And it's interesting to me because I'm not really, like, a am not... a genre writer in the sense that, you know, I don't believe that I should be wedded to one particular thing. I feel like I just tell stories. So it's really nice to have the opportunity to write these films that are more or less steeped in realism, you know, and, and then have, you know, a few months later a book out that kind of isn't, you know, <laughs> just to say, okay, well, I don't believe in the boundaries of genre, you know, I really don't. And I just want to tell really, really good stories and, and, and push the boundaries of what how black British writing is perceived, but writing as a whole.
1: Can I get you to to read us a bit then?
2: Sure. I am going to read from the part of the book that's in the early stages when Marcus has uh, been awarded his chance to travel into the ark and this is just a snippet of his journey. They rose at eight, had breakfast by nine and by 9.30 the parents and children waited in the lobby, visibly nervous. Shared anxieties broke silence. They spoke, not to make polite conversation, only to reassure themselves that everything would be fine. The bland official appeared before them, all smiles and congratulations, annoying catchphrases. They ignored his phony jubilation, letting themselves be led to a small dark car with blackened windows like a hearse. Willow bolt. The official was at her shoulder in an instant with more smiles, some gentle nudging, and they were in. Doors slammed. Twin crunches. The car moved. Everything had been so low-key up until that point, his first sight of the crowds and cameras and protesters had the effect of being punched. Although they were not the thousands that had besieged the station in the early days, the crowd still numbered over 500 and would be rounded up to eight on that night's evening news. The car slowed. People were on the roads, pavements, signs, rooftops, bus shelters, window ledges, parked cars, anything that could hold their weight. Grateful for tinted windows, Marcus watched people beat fists against the glass in delirium, scream that they were sellouts cursed by a rah, or simply stand as motionless as they could manage in the jostling crowd, tempting to take pictures of what nobody knew. Glass rendered their cameras useless. All through the onslaught, Marcus watched, barely taking a breath, barely feeling Willow's hand on his back rubbing in gentle circles. Beside him, Senior was equally stunned by what he saw. Junior went silent for a time. Then suddenly screamed loud, turned beetroot, and apologised immediately. Eventually, all of them dreading the moment, the car came to a gradual halt. Doors opened and there were hands, a forest of them searching as the driver yelled that they should leave the vehicle right now. Senior went first, then Junior. Then Marcus himself was pulled into the noise. The colours, the screaming, jeering, shouting, cheering, going off in their ears. Snatches of sentences from hundreds of open mouths. Everything too bright, too noisy. The tinny sound of a band could be heard from somewhere near. The air was a jungle of odours, ranging from cigarette and piaro smoke to hot dogs, sulphur, sweet nuts, perfume, frying onions, alcohol and vomit. Marcus stumbled, turning to see his mother flailing between two rows of ill masked black-suited men who formed parallel lines from the car doors and beyond. long barreled guns drawn, they held the crowd back, saying nothing other than, ''Keep moving, sir, madam, please keep moving.'' He shouted to see if Willow was all right. But there was so much noise, his voice was lost. And before he could try again, his eye was caught by one of the larger protest banners, luminous yellow, screaming, inner city is a lie, let them stay. Nothing. No sound, only a silent movie playing in front of him. People jumping, screaming, punching fists into polluted air, driven by a passion Marcus had never seen. That was when he noticed one particular protester, bearing a smaller sign that said, today is yesterday. Tomorrow as today is truth.
1: So I've been talking to Courtier Newland. We've been talking about his latest novel, A River Called Time, which is out now from Canongate. Courtier, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it.
2: No problem. Thank you.
1: This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by ACAST. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands.